Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 18. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Rex Brown, bassist for Pantera, one of the biggest hard rock and heavy metal bands of the past few decades, alongside Guns N' Roses and Metallica. Like Metallica, Pantera had number one albums with minimal support from traditional commercial outlets and went platinum several times over. Pantera wrote a groundswell of underground loyalty, earned through several years of blood, sweat, and road beers. Five major label albums, countless international tours, and a series of carnage-filled home videos cemented a legacy as large as their massive riffs and the band's insatiable appetite for mayhem, authenticity, and brotherhood. As documented with stark honesty and emotional courage in the pages of his memoir, 101 Truth, 101 Proof, The Inside Story of Pantera, Brown and his Texas brethren forged a unique musical identity comprised of bottom-heavy rhythms, fearless guitar histrionics, and blunt force savagery, a blueprint that's been followed by nearly every single metal act that's formed in their wake. Late lead guitar player Daryl Dimebag Abbott is rightly immortalized as a good-natured guitar-shredding legend. Rex also worked alongside Pantera frontman Philip H. Anselmo in Down, issuing three full-length albums, expanded and enhanced by moody grooves and stonerific doom, layering a hazy, down-tuned smoke all over their southern metal. He's played with Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains, Max and Igor Cavalera, and Crowbar, and was part of the supergroup Kill Devil Hill. But there's more to the story to be told. Stepping out as a frontman for the first time, Rex reintroduced himself to the world on his barn-burning debut solo album, Smoke on This. The man who joined Pantera in 1982 and helped move thousands of cassettes and LPs from the back of car trunks in the parking lots of smoky clubs, before the rest of the world discovered the Cowboys from Hell, is foremost a good old boy from a small town. He was deeply moved by the Beatles, the Stones, and Elvis, thanks to his older sister, and happily confesses to being the biggest Zeppelin fan in the world. His connection to everything that was killer about the 70s, from Southern Fried Floridian rockers Blackfoot to English slide guitar master's Foghat, is nothing short of personal and electric. As he'll attest himself, he listens to everything from Frank Sinatra to Slayer. Brown wields a six-string guitar as confidently as he wore the bass in Pantera and Down. His engaging voice crackles with easygoing spirit and truth-telling power. It's a crunchy drawl that's down-to-earth, grippingly relatable, charmingly welcoming, and gritty. Somewhere between the achingly resonant spiritual shamanism of Tom Waits and the instantly recognizable everyman AM radio vibes of the late Tom Petty. After a season away to gather his wits about him, rediscover his own roots, and assemble a group of players ready to help him execute his vision for the days ahead, Rex reemerged with an album's worth of tunes as honest and sincere as they come. Smoke on this is the sound of a man's own truth, forthright and ego free. As he likes to say, you're only as good as your word and your word better be good. In this episode, Rex talks about the massive influence of Metallica on Pantera, the time he and Dimebag played a half-dozen Metallica songs with James and Lars in a tiny Texas bar, the night Metallica stuck the guys in Pantera with the strip club tab for both bands, the historic 1991 Monsters of Rock show that united ACDC, Metallica, and Pantera in Moscow with the twilight of the Soviet Union, Fellowshipping with Jerry Cantrell and James Hetfield as all three of them journeyed into recovery from alcohol abuse. And the ways classic Pantera albums intersected with Ride the Lightning and the Black Album. Before we get into that, let's have a listen to Buried Alive, the deeply confessional and emotional tune about the death of Dimebag Daryl from Rex's debut solo album, Smoke on This. 
And now here it is, my chat with Rex Brown. This is Speak and Destroy. I know, you know, from having read your book, obviously, and, and gotten to know you a bit too, um, you know, some of the different places where Metallica is intersect, intersected with your life. One thing I don't know, um, you know, that you, you, had, you had heard Kill 'em All and that, or, you know, and that you had uh, gotten Ride the Lightning around the time you guys were doing I Am the Night. Um, I'm curious what that first, do you remember who first played you the band or how you, how you first got turned on to it in the very beginning we had our i think our first official pantera dishwasher because we you know we got a the rehearsal was in the garage and so um yeah his name was and i don't like him so i don't want to repeat his name um but anyway our first pantera dishwasher had to kill them all and we were playing like six or seven nights a week playing all these clubs and he was also guitar taking and so how we met these guys was in 84. Um, I think we had just done projects in the jungle and getting close to the night on those, the, the first, you know, you got to remember we were like 18, 19 years old mm-hmm. or something like that. Or I must've been 18, maybe 19 at that time. This was still uh Rex rocker and diamond Daryl days. Yeah. Yeah. It was still those days. So, um, we, Rita Haney, who was, you know, eventually Dime's wife. I mean, they might as well call it that. Um, they never got married, but but uh, they were together since they were kids. Um, they kind of, you know, Metallica back in the day had a word for, for kind of groupy like chicks, and it was Edna's. So um, back in those days, I think Rita and one of her close friends that I was going out with had, and which she's she's passed, but um, they had met the Metallica boys and had become friends with them, and had gone up to see them on Day in the Day of the Green. Day, is that am I saying that right? Yeah, Day, Day on, on the, the Green. Green. Yeah. Did we all come here to kick some fucking ass or what? Well, I tell you. If you came here to see fucking spandex and fucking makeup and hairspray and all this crap, this ain't the fucking band. We came here to bash our fucking heads together for 45 minutes. What about you? All right. And so I think it's one of the best performances ever. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, we were huge. We'd heard ride on ride the lightning and it was about that time they decided they wanted to take a break and just get away. And so Rita and, and, uh, and the niece, uh, said, come to Texas. You got to hear this band. And it was us. And, uh, and so we were playing out there. Wait a second. We weren't playing. We were playing the weekend, I believe, or something like that. Anyway, it, it, that's only been 34 <laughs> years ago. Right. Um, so um, you got to remember, we're, we're still just young kids. And, you know, these guys are on the same level. They're 
just from all over the place. You know, Lars still had a real heavy Danish accent. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't sound anything like he does today. And, uh, and James is just that, uh, you know, this big, tall, you know, you don't want to fuck with kind of cat. And they came down and, and, uh, and I can, I'm trying to put in, I'm trying to think because it's been that long of how I think they came over and we partied the night before. This was like a Tuesday and got to meet them. And we had a, everything set up in the studio. Before, but before you before you met him, you'd seen him play, right? Like you'd saw him on the uh, oh yeah, the yeah. Raven tour. We, we'd and, gone. And we, it was like as Raven and, and Armored Saint, I think, or who was it? It was Armored Saint, maybe Merciful Fate. I can't remember um, who, who they came with in that. In, I, in I know on uh, on Kill 'Em All that was the Raven tour, and then uh, uh, we we saw that, and then we Ride the Lightning to... was Wasp and Armored Saint. That's it. That's yeah. the one we saw both of those. So we we didn't get to meet him on the on the on the first record on Kill 'Em All, but we didn't. Uh, we had seen him. I think yeah, we had seen him on that on that tour, um, and still didn't know him. And then they came all day. All of a sudden, they just kind of showed up. You know, down goes the guys from Metallica are coming in. They want to come over and you know check us out. Awesome. And I'm like. Oh shit! Why don't we just hang? You know, um, let's just do that thing first before. And so there's all these old pictures that I can't remember who, who took them. I think it's a buddy of ours, Stuart Taylor's a good friend of Dimes. They took all these photos of us, and we had the you know the the big uh, um, we had a trailer out and you know in the back, and and uh, there's some pictures of us standing there. And we all got bullet belts on and you know stupid looking shirts and. Uh, and um, anyway, we, we just somehow, it was just kind of like this weird bonding. Who are these little fucking kids out of Texas? How, how are they so fucking good? Mm-hmm. And what are they doing? You know? And it wasn't necessarily, you know, Vinny wasn't kind of involved in this. I don't know what he was doing at the time. I know that he was hanging around, but uh, he's not chronicled in pictures. It was pretty much just me and Diamond. And those two guys. And I've so, seen. I've actually seen some of those pictures on the internet that are yeah, you and Dime and and James and Lars are the ones. It I'd was seen, crazy because yeah. we we stayed up drinking. I don't know how many beers we drank that night when we first met them. It was on a Tuesday, I believe, because Wednesday we got up and jammed uh, and played about. I don't know. We played about six Metallica tracks. Uh, <laughs> wow! Just the four of us, which is fucking nuts. Um, it, we we probably drank two or three cases of beer that night till six in the morning. So we're talking Lars on drums, James guitar vocals, Dime lead guitar, yep. Rex Brown yep. on bass, and me playing bass. Wow, <laughs> to be a fly on the and wall no, for that. And nobody had heard this music before. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, we're going to this little pop, you know, this little pop bar that's that was it was called Savvy's, and. uh and it was like, you know, this is 84, still the Texas Blues guys are still playing there, you know. Uh, we, we had kind of, we were probably 15 years old or, or 16. Um, you know, we had played, that was one of our first gigs. Um, and it was just a small, back then, in those days, it was, it was still a real kind of a small, 
you know, kind of a small bar. Well, we started selling the place out, and you know, 2,000 people a night, which they changed over in like 86. Um, they had bought the other place next to it just to accommodate the crowds that we had on, on those weekends. So um, this is, you know, you this is one of those kind of bars that stick to the carpet when you walked. You know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. it was like a lounge kind of cool bar. You know, but everybody that's anybody that played Savvy's. You know, uh, back in the day, I, I remember seeing, you know, Blackfoot to Jesus, just all these killer bands. Um, and it was right up the street. Um, when I say right up the street in Texas means about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what up right up the street meant. Um, so anyway, they came over. We got loaded till about six, seven in the morning, uh, just raising hell. And I remember Dime had this yellow firebird. And we got in that thing, and we used to smash mailboxes with it, and uh, and tear up people's yards. <laughs> and that was dude, you can't get away with that stuff now, you know. Uh, my poor son does <laughs> does crazy stuff like that, and he gets in all kinds of just trouble, 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 trouble. But anyway, we used to get away with all kinds of shit back in those days. Um, and this was like, you know, it, it was a four sixty four in this this Firebird motor seventy uh, three. And anyway, yeah, we there weren't there weren't uh, streetlight cameras and cell phone cameras and all that back then. So. No, there was <laughs> nothing back then, you know. And we were just hoodlums having a good time, you know. Um, you know, you think about going back and make a mimic. Shit, I couldn't start with half of Arlington to put new mailboxes. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, we I think. We the we had the set up the, the studio place and Diamond had a little four track room and we sat in there and I believe that there's still tapes, there's still footage of and this is when back in you're holding the big VHS, mm-hmm. you know, big boomer thing on like boom box, you know, for a camera. And uh I think him and James sat down and and uh went over kind of stuff of what we were gonna do the next night. And so we got up the next night and played six songs, and it was just uh, there was there was definitely a chemistry there, you know. It was it was definitely some, but they dude, I mean, they had Burton who was bright and like crazy, you know. Um, you know how much Cliff was a big part of that early Metallica. Oh yeah, you know. And that and that day on the green performance you mentioned, that's like the legend. Like when you when I picture Cliff Burton, that's what I picture. That's so iconic. Oh, and his look and everything yeah. there. Yeah. You know that that was that was the whole deal. Do you all know Cliff Burton over here? Everyone, hi Cliff, how you doing? Just been turned on to those guys, and it, we knew that record inside and out. 
you know, and, and even the first track, I remember picking up the first track and I, and it was about the time that, that, that wave of all the new, uh, the new wave of heavy metal bands had come through and we were big, like leopard fans and, you know, the first few records and, and, um, but when this first came in, you know, you had the Ravens and you had Metallica and you had the Armored Saints and everybody had this look that was a non-look, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great way to describe it. And, and, and it was like, okay, they all all these covers look the same. Nobody's trying to go for this. You know, this is this underground tape movement shit. You know, it became really big in the next following couple of years. So it was... Uh, you know, it, it's this non looked at, okay, but well, what does it sound like? You know, like sometimes back in the 80s, you would look at a band and either they had the cool clothes or they didn't, you know. Um, if you do, here I go back again. If you take the clothes and the image and all that shit off of people or even the non-image and just listen to the music, there's some great songs that came out of the 80s, you know, Um of all kind of genres, but everybody had to wear that same spiffy LA bullshit, even page and plant, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you take away all that, put them in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah. You know, it, it it's, uh, there were some great songs in there, you know, but it's all about that image and the stage show and the fucking big ass lights and, you know, um, but anyway, getting back to Metallica, they were a band that, that's who we wanted to be you know we didn't want to be we didn't want to sound like them we wanted to we we just loved the way the the heaviness of of the band it was you know if you remember cliff was pretty pretty melodic you know um and he he was a trained musician in the band and of course Vinny and i were trained also and uh and i've always liked the melody of anything you know even any kind of Based on whether it's minor or major, you know, um, it, it's the melody of what what the song does. So, um, but we're still young bucks just trying to figure it out, you know. Especially in Texas, um, it was uh, we didn't have those same records that probably Lars had brought over, you know, right. from from you know, I think we had it was called the Emporium Trade. Or, or something like that and it was, it was basically that's how those records were imported and so at the same time it, it's funny because they had turned us on to their um they hadn't yet signed i, I don't know when they signed with electra if it was before rock lightning or during i want to say it was it, during it, it was during and then electra re-released it during that same album cycle because he had come out on megaforce originally and then uh michael alago who i had on the podcast a few episodes back um fucking alago's nuts <laughs> he is i i'd seen a documentary but i want to <laughs> they have documentaries fun. had a chance because dude just talking to a cast of documentary um <laughs> absolutely but a lot yeah Lago was gonna sign us i mean several times you know um it was it was kind of nuts so where were they going with this? So it, it was all tape trading, and you never knew who what this band looked like if you were just trading tapes, you know. And that that went on for a long time, especially when we got Phil in the band, because that's all they did was trade tapes and shit like that. Uh, some of those first down things were, I mean, I don't know how many copies of those of that first four riff tape were just, you know, just tape trading shit. That's back when tapes were cool, you know. Yeah. 
But anyway, I want to say that this is before they were assigned to Elijah. And um, there's something about the the production of that record and something about the the uh, the melodies that really just turned us on completely because that's you know we we were kind of honed on Texas blues and and uh, at the same time we're listening to structured Mutt Lang productions and you know uh, whatever was a hot song of 1983 um, you know there's a lot of shit bands back then. Uh, they were trying to be heavy, but Metallica was a real deal. You know, um, I think it was Ace of Spades that got me into it, and then and then it was probably Ride the Lightning before Kill 'Em All. Um, I think we went backwards and and found Kill 'Em All after that. But uh, there's just something about Ride the Lightning that just did it. You know, that that's a very special record, and I think that they captured that because they had toured so much off that record. You know, just like ours with the first Cowboys record, we toured 338 fucking days. We knew what was going to work, mm-hmm. you know, and went into the studio and just did Vulgar. And it was it was one of those, I would put that in the same as Ride the Lightning. And then, of course, when Master of Puppets came out, well, that was another beast all to its own. You know, um, the recording on that was crazy. I mean, I remember listening to that record after just pulling the needle back. We had gotten a new stereo on a ranch or something like that at the house. And, and uh, oh, man, I just remember listening to every single rotation of the of the vinyl, you know. Indeed. And and you mentioned, uh, you know, you touched on the ref- the uh, the context of the the image and sort of the packaging, so to speak, of bands in the 80s. Would you, would you say that Metallica was... Uh, influential on Pantera in the idea that, you know, hey, we can just look like ourselves and, you know, get up there wearing what we wear. I don't, and... I don't think at that point, I think the more our musical taste was in that direction. Um, I believe that them coming down and probably going, hey, guys, you don't have to wear that stupid shit, you know, probably helped. Um, but we still had to because that was the only place we, we could play. You know, right. um, it was a different, it was a, this whole poser deal. You know how that went back in those days. Oh, you're mm-hmm. a poser if you're, you know, oh, if you're selling records, that's horseshit, man. Um, but that was all a hoax. You know, he comes back and now it's a hoax. Um, none of that shit. Um, if you got a good song, you got a good song. That's all there is to it. Doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter what you're doing. And we were just, you know, we were kind of under the guidance of, of the Abbott's dad, brother's dad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it was all about the hit song, you know. Um, and back then, nobody gave a fuck, you know. Um, here's these little young teens, kind of like Greta Van, Van Fleet, but not ripping anybody else, trying to find their own sound. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys, these guys are ripping <laughs> just straight out of the old fucking Zeppelin. Because <laughs> the singer yeah. sounds just like it, you know. So why not? But his balls are going to drop soon. They're going to be fucking shit in the water, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. they remind me of uh, Kingdom Come, that band in the 80s that just sounded exactly like Led Zeppelin. Everybody wanted that. I forgot who produced that record. Everybody wanted to have that sound. Um, I remember when that record came out, the drums were fucking huge. Um, I, want to say, I want to say Bob Rock did it. I'm not sure. Um I forgot all about that to you. So that, yeah, they they actually opened the first time I saw Metallica 
1988 on Monsters of Rock, and it was Van Halen with Sammy Hagar, the Scorpions, right, Dawkins, Metallica, and yeah, Kingdom Come opened. Uh, they got their asses handed to them. Indeed. I remember back then the, the joke was everybody called him Kingdom Clone because <laughs> they sounded so much like it. Well, I mean, it, it pretty much was. I mean, wasn't Bonham in that band? Um, uh, it was around that same time that, that Bonham had that his solo band going. I just went and saw that Bonham experience, and it, it, and me, it's funny. Foreigner uh, Cheap Trick and and the Bonham experience came in town, and I went and saw that thing, and it just, and I've known the bass player for a while, Michael, um, and it just blew me a fucking way. The singer comes out, the guitar player. I mean, it's note for note, you know. Um, and so me and Rick Nelson are sitting there on the side. He goes, "Now watch this," you know. They go into Ramble on or you know, yeah. and I was just like, holy shit. You know, because I've known all those guys, the foreigner guys to, you know, the cheap trick, especially cheap, cheap trick guys for forever. Um, and I hadn't seen them in years, probably in the 16 years that Rick quit drinking. So there you go. Well, yeah, I got to go. I got to check out that, that Bonham thing. Uh, and by the way, you're right. I just looked it up. Uh, it's really good. That Kingdom Come debut album was produced by Bob Rock up there in Vancouver. He sure, I mean, there you memory. go. I was on it. You were on it. Um, I think mean, that's what got him his start. I was going to say, and he obviously figures into the Metallica story pretty prominently. Um, now, you you told a story in your book, I believe, about uh, I think I think it was your book. I saw it, or it might have been in an interview, but about Metallica sticking Pantera with the strip club bill once. <laughs> what do you What do you remember about oh, yeah, about yeah. that? Okay. Now. This this is after this is um they had had a couple of days you know I think it was during that that Monsters of Rock show and we had had another gig we couldn't go see it we you know when you get gigs you got to take them um put bread on the table so um they stayed up for a couple of days and they had uh, Justice for All with them and we went to so we hung out for like two I can't remember if they were down during that period a couple of times but they kept coming back down you know what i'm saying it wasn't like it um wasn't like that we kept in touch with them they just kept showing up and wanted to hang you know um which is cool so let's see i'm trying to remember we were in a parking lot somewhere some rock clubbing and Lars goes you want do you want to hit the uh, i can't i can't do his invitation um <laughs> You want to hear our new Injustice for All? And so they put it on, and we had a badass stereo in this little car that we were driving around with a trailer behind it. I think, no, this was just a band car. By then, we had a truck. Um, and so we listened to it. There's no bass on it. None. And I looked at Lars and said, <laughs> dude, you're out of your fucking mind. I said, yeah, what? what? Did the bass player even show up? I mean, it, he goes, no, man, we're just rattling the shit out of him. I said, well, are you going to put bass on? He goes, there's bass there. If you listen very closely, you can just barely hear it. And now this is when they were going through, you know, they went through about, I don't I want to say five different mixing guys. Mm-hmm. But this was the final, this was the final thing. You know, the, this was their mastered version. And I was like, dude, that's not going to fly, bro. <laughs> you know? And they go, well, we like it. And I said, I love the fucking riffs, you know. Uh, I was trying to think, just one that, the shortest straw, I guess, was what really kind of 
that was a great fucking song. And Newstead's got a riff on there. He's got a co-write on Blackened, the first song on the record. Uh, I forgot all about that record, man. That's a good one. That, hey, you know that that is a, the the atypical record if you're a bass player to just put on and learn, just put your own bass lines on. You know what I'm saying? And this has come up on the podcast before, you know. But there's some some people on YouTube. Uh, uh, I saw one. It was called "And Justice for Jason," where they, you know, they recorded some new bass on top of it, or they put the bass. He's a trippy mix. dude, man. He it was funny. I saw him three or four years ago, and he came out and saw a kid over the Hell Show. We were in a Walnut Creek, and him and Flynn, and and uh, when things are different, and and uh, and I went to lunch with with both of them, and. And uh, Jason's just a weird motherfucker, man. You know, I'll put that on the record. I don't care. Um, he's just a he's just a strange bird, you know. Uh, it was uh, now I know why he didn't get all the way, you know. So he kind of took off in different. He was he was trying to be heard. He was so intelligent, and so smart. But if you just won the gang and just laid back, you'd probably have your bass parts on the record, you know. I mean the black album. It, it's it's got some really good, you know, because you're playing Spectres, you know, and that's that's fine. The Spectres are the those are the only glue that you can get on a record back in the metal days that would hold up to those guitars, and that's what I use for all of it. Yeah, and that um, and and Justice for All and the black album couldn't be any more different in terms in terms of bass. You know, it went from a non-existent presence on justice to well uh, and, and i think also that you know it was crazy what we were doing you know all the like cowboys from hell and all the other stuff the stuff we walked out the door with the bass was plenty loud in the mix you know it was decent it wasn't that big but once you got it mastered and all that reverb and stuff that was on top of it you know we really didn't have a budget to go in and just remaster the whole fucking thing you know, um, these days I do. Uh, if I hear one little slightest thing, I'll go back and remaster track. But it, it, it was, uh, you know, it was so hard to get. Nine Sound was so big, it was so hard to get that 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 bass through there. You know, yeah. And with the the reverb on the snare, it was just it was just impossible until I found the specialty. So we go into this this one place and it was called Lace, and and. Uh, in the north part of Arlington. And it was like, you know, 15 bucks a shot. And these guys at that time, it just had, they kept going, you know, it'd be, it was always like, here was James's deal. He would always pin like the first shot on one dude, you know? And for us, we were barely making 250 bucks a week, you know? Uh, that That would pretty much wipe you out, you know, unless you had a lot of money saved up. Uh, there were probably, I don't know, four, 12 to 14 of us there, you know, so it started going down the tab and then, you know, at the very end of it, we were stuck with the bill and uh, we just put it all on Vinny's credit card. <laughs> Instead of them going, we'll pay for it guys. We were just fucking with you, you know, um, we, we learned a good lesson that night. Ne- never do that to friends. You know, you just don't do that. It's funny, but it's not that funny. You know, we always paid for our own. We paid for everybody's goddamn drinks back in the day. Yeah, and I found a video from that same era of you guys covering, from 1988, of Pantera covering No Remorse, and Philip introduces it and says, uh,
Metallica has no equal. We thought we'd play this in tribute, and it's just a, a ripping version of that song, too. <laughs> well, it, it became a competition, you know. When uh, we went out and did, uh, we were we had just finished probably half the basic tracks on Vulgar, mm-hmm. and we went and met them in Moscow. And it was the first time we played it. Dude, you got to remember, we were still a fucking club band, but we had been on bigger stages and played like theaters and stuff like that. But, um, you know, that first tour, we weren't on very big stages. I mean, the, the Warfield was the extent of it. Um, and so they put us on this big stage in Moscow and it's ACDC set, right? Um, it's not Metallica's. Um, they did just had one set coming into Moscow and that was it and uh, little tents for backstage rooms in the back. And I remember seeing the guys, and I ran over, and I think I tripped on one of the stakes that was holding the tent up, and I was like, you need to be careful, Rex. And I'm like, dude, I'm amped up for this show, dude. Um, how y'all doing? And, and it was like us and the Black Crows and, and, and those guys hanging out. Monsters of Rock in 91, right? It's pretty yeah. legendary yeah. show, yeah. The crowd was estimated to be anything between 600,000 and a million strong. Heavy metal crowd here is very big, but also, you know, it's very restricted. I mean, it's like a cult. When we went out there, the crowd was so into it, and they were so up for seeing us. It was, it was great. It was like, you know, playing, playing a regular, you know, West, Western, Western country. Well, Metallica performed at last weekend's record-breaking metal festival in Moscow, but their performance could have ground to an early halt when drummer Lars Ulrich cut his hand early in the set. Thanks very much, Moscow. Very good. And it, we all stayed at the same hotel, you know, with the even the in the ACDC guys. And it was the, I don't even remember the last night. I remember going to the airport and I turned around to my producer Terry Dayton. He goes, "Man, you did you brush your teeth this morning? You still smell like shit." And I was like brush him twice in fact um and it was quite a ride home um it it sucked but anyway it you know that show was was one of those things where we had to go back and overdub stuff because i'd run out on the ego ramps and just we were just fucking going crazy and uh i had some drop out on the bass and shit like that but it was uh that was one of the most devastating sets we've ever played in our life you know our, our our lives depend on it and this is like the end of the soviet union too so it's like a crazy oh dude oh i mean the, the shit we saw is because police guys with bats and fucking it was um you know they were there were so many people there man how they controlled that i have no idea you know i, I literally to this day have no fucking idea how they I mean, there was way over a million people there, you know, 
um, we saw some other footage of them, you know, from like the the funny thing is that, you know, Steve Ross when he was alive, well, it, we didn't know this until years later um, after his son Mark signed us. And so we, we didn't know that for forever. You know, this is a little shit deal on Atco Records for, I think, you know, back in the day it was like, you know, it was pretty chompy. And, um, and so anyway, uh, Steve, Mark's the one that put this thing on, you know, and then HBO got behind it and get, put all the money up. And of course, Tom Warner, you know, put a, they, they spent, I don't know how many millions of dollars making this. Um, but it was truly, um, you know, just, I'll, I'll never forget that my in my entire life of going into that city and just seeing people stand in line for bread. You know, I've never seen anything like that. And a country is is, is so has so much resource. You know, I'm looking at a a report from the New York Times from 1991 on the show, uh, and it, it says there's an estimated 150,000 people there, and that there were more than a thousand. Uh, members from the militia in the Soviet Union that were there, like around the stage, and and then more. Oh, it was it was crazy. We, we had gone two days, or you know, like the the first two days while we were setting up the stage, we got there early, and uh, the other guys were still playing. I think in you know like the Eastern Block because that's where the tour was. It was ACDC, Metallica, and then Black Crows, and um, and then they had they just got us on the bill to open up is just like, you know, this is it. But they didn't tell us what it's going to be. So we started seeing all this stuff. You know, there's these, there's the old Sputnik sitting there in this airfield, you know, the very first capsule. Dude, there's nothing around it, not a, a gate, a fence, or, or anything else. Um, but the barricades were, I mean, dude, 150,000, my ass. I've, I've seen 250,000 people before. And because of when we played in front of them, um, down in Chile or Buenos Aires, you know, um, I've seen 250,000 people. This was much, <laughs> those 250,000 people, this, this was fucking, you could see, well, as far as your eye could see, it wasn't a very clear day when we played. It was kind of overcast. But you could probably see, let's say, six miles. You couldn't see any fucking terrain. There was ju- it was just people, you know. So their little estimate was completely off base. You know, there's no telling because it was a free concert, and so all these, the, you know, the the only way that people knew where they were, they they just traveled inside and in, in, into Russia because they had opened the borders, you know, um, and they just had their flags so that's how they knew what country was where you know so if you look in if you go back and look at the footage you can see all these flags and that's from where the different countries are all 20 fucking eight of them so insane so insane and just what we had gone a couple of days earlier and then you know met up with the Metallica guys the night before the show and or no actually the day of the show and then after that, we went back to the hotel, and everybody just got fucking knockered. Um, Brian Johnson was a was a host for the party. Brilliant man. Amazing! What a legendary! What a moment in in culture, you know, for 
I mean, even this New York mm. Times article talks, the article actually starts off talking about Pantera and uh, it describes Philip wearing a yellow devil's mask and taking it off and, and saying, it, you know, talking about the universal language and how killer it is to see all those people there together. Um, wow. It talks about you guys playing Primal Concrete Slave. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, um, the audience just losing their mind to it. That's uh, what a, what a, a it, it did. And I think that was the last song to say. This is a song of unity. This is one called Primal Concrete Slave. And this is a little bit at this is around the the black album era. And you and I actually spoke before about, uh, you know, Pantera being in the studio and you know working on Vulgar and and kind of not 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 direct competition so much as just seeing that Metallica was was taking that step. Actually, what it, what had happened was is that we were in L.A. and I just turned happened to turn the radio on, and we were we were mixing Vulgar. I want to say, or, or mastering it. Um, and so it was usually me and Don and Vinny, and Phil didn't want any part of it. Uh, we would head out to L.A. and, and <clears throat> either overdub or master this thing. And I turned the radio on and said, here's Metallica's new single. And I heard it on this little cheap, you know, iHome radio or whatever the fuck. And once I heard that inner Sandman, I went, if the rest of the record's any indication of what this was, we just slipped to a fucking crack big time. And I went on a fucking political campaign with the label about that, um, about how this could possibly change everything. And it did. You know, we, we were there at the right time with the right record at the right time for you know there was no rage against the machine there was no it was it was only us metallica and fucking and and Avon. you know what i'm saying um i mean there was there was there was soundgarden but they weren't they weren't gonna they they slipped to their own crack you know what i mean um for us on the metal side it, that was the perfect timing opportunity the way that they had taken so long to craft this record and then i heard it on the radio i go we're set you know i didn't even go to management i went straight to fucking Derek showman said dude this is it you know you got to do something with this thing and then we got the skid row tour um and then it was all over you know yeah and that skid row tour was was uh i mean talk about a gateway you know people if you were a metal fan or a hard rock fan and Skid Row was the heaviest thing you had heard and then you got the Black Album, that melted your mind and then that opened the doorway that you're listening to Vulgar Display and just that's, you're in. That's that you're absorbed right into the culture. You know, those were like, yeah, those, those were the records. Skid Row had just come off the road with Metallica when they had first started doing those days. We had to sit on Vulgar for 
like six months, you know? And, uh, so it was one of those where, um, dude, sitting on that record for six months was torture. It was hell, you know? Um, before it finally came out, I think in February, March, whenever that came out. Um, anyway, it was, it was fucking insane. Um, but, and we were playing it for everybody that would, you know, that we could, we were playing, you know, some extra dates and stuff like that. Vulgar came out in 92, February 25th, 26 years ago. I'll be damned. You know, it, it seems like yesterday that it came, that I remember us being in the studio, you know, which is, we'll put it back closer to 25 years. Um, but that record was just so magical. And, you know, um, I haven't felt, I don't think we ever had that kind of, uh, there was just something, you know, it's crazy. Philip and I moved these, these, uh, loft apartments that were sitting right next to them and we had cut a hole in the fence and we, basically it was 50 paces to the studio door, you know? Um, and we'd always meet about noon to grab some eat. um, the three of us get to work on tracks and, and then Phil would come down. But, um, man, that, that was one of those just, all the riffs came with the, just, it was just, you know, we only spent maybe three months on that record um, or four, you know, because it took us a little extra time with the, the trip to Moscow. Um, but it was, man, I mean, it you, you, that kind of charisma and being on the road, being that tight, and it's going in and having these little snippets of songs, you know, and just building them all. The first five tracks of that album are like a, a, the first half of a Pantera Greatest Hits. Mouth it, for War, New Level, Walk, Fucking Hostile, This Love, like all just And like it right all came just like, it, it was insane. I think, you know, I want to say that, that we wrote those songs in that fucking order. Wow. I know they weren't. Yeah, but I know that some of them were. I mean, we were trying to think. Okay, what uh, you know, we've done the cowboy thing. We've gotten really tight. This one we have to make it a little bit tighter, even though we want a bigger sound. Um, and we're still we we had changed boards and and uh, but still recording in the same environment, you know, environment. So um, I just remember it went by as a blur. When you go through those records that are kind of blurry. And you mm-hmm. can't remember, but you can remember if somebody asked you the specific of, of the song. Um, but as the whole, you know, say the whole thing, if it's a blur to you, then it was good. You know, the ones that you had to beat, that you had to beat up and all that kind of stuff. Those are the ones that stick out more than this one. I just remember how just insanely, um, um, how tight we were as a band, how just we didn't give a fuck. We just, we were just going to go in and make the record that we wanted to make and not, you know, we had put out Cowboys at work. We had, you know, recorded three times, you know, and just that was kind of polished. We wanted to make something that's just raw and nobody was doing, you know. Um, we knew, we knew what the scene was. We had every demo tape from fucking Tijuana up to, you know, Portland, Maine to, you know, to, to fucking wherever, you know, 
um, Europe in between. Everybody used to go to the States. We would listen to all of them, and we knew exactly what the fuck we wanted to do, you know. Um, and But we didn't ever talk about it, you know. It was just, we know what we have to do, you know. And somebody would come up with a spark, and then that spark ignited a fucking uh, an explosion, you know. Remember, Phil, we, the one thing we got stuck was we couldn't figure out this one little this progress for uh, we never smoked weed like before, like the early, you know, we tried to at least get the basic tracks down before we would go in and, you know, start having a beer or whatever, you know, um, back in those days. And I remember Philip and Dime went out and we, we got stuck on fucking new level and they walked out, smoked a fucking joint, came back in, they had the whole fucking riff. Um, Philip sat in the corner 15 minutes, wrote the lyrics. We were done with that track in hour, hour and a half, done. Except for the lead. A new And it's crazy the way that worked because we, you know, it was just one of those things that, you know, they needed some inspiration somewhere. And I know that when I said earlier that, that we almost wrote that, you know, verbatim how it went, I think that with that tune, we, Philip had the same, but Don just couldn't translate it the way that Philip was trying to do it. And uh, so they had to kind of, you know, they used to get in some fucking squabbles, you know, about things the way they wanted it. They were too strong at it, and I was too, but I just I got in the middle. I'd always pull Philip off of him. But um, <clears throat> I would take basically and just arrange what they had, you know, um, but let them, you know, it, and that's why I didn't want to go out there and get high with them because then I would have been worthless, you know, <laughs> if any of would have gone out and been needed to smoke, you know. Um, I would get out there and got some, and it, then we couldn't have made semblance of any of it. But in, anyway, we were writing, it, we wrote it right there on the spot, fucking, and just nailed it. And I think we went back and did it overdose. But the, the, you know, to have a song like that that's so complex be written in less than 30 minutes was fucking nuts. It's incredible. Incredible. And that, that, that song in five minutes alone, which is of course on the next record, but th- those, those mm-hmm. are my, those are my two all time favorite Pantera songs of the many great songs. And, and we're sitting here talking about Metallica and how important ride the lightning and master of puppets. And the, you know, those records had their influence on what we did, you know, these records are every bit as important to metal, you know, the stuff that came out of Pantera in that era, especially. Which is crazy, you know. We, it's not that we were like pen pals or we didn't get on the phone and talk to those guys, but we'd just see them, you know, or they would come down and we were always, and they would always make sure that we were taken care of, and, and uh, except for that one bar tab, you know, which is kind of <laughs> funny. Um, I, think they, I think they ended up kind of splitting with Vinny at the end. I, I think that's what the deal was. Um but it, it was a lot of fucking Jägermeister, man. That was a drink of choice. <laughs> I always say, I always say, Jägermeister owes Metallica a lot of money because they really, uh, 
<laughs> they should have they back in those they days. Jagermeister was a fucking. I mean, <laughs> shit. You must drink fourteen or fifteen shots a piece at at uh, ten bucks a pop. You did a snaps. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. I want to ask you about. There was, you know, we were talking about Newstead um, around '94. There's a great video. Uh, Philip calls it Pantalica from in San Jose, where uh, Jason got up and did Seek and Destroy and Whiplash with the oh, guys. I remember that night. By the time Whiplash was on, it was Dime on vocals and Philip on guitar. Um, and yeah, and there's a part in the watching the video on YouTube where uh, you know you actually hand Jason your bass. Um, I think for Seek and Destroy. Yeah, what were those moments like? How did those jams? come about i i guess this would be the mid 90s well it, it was just kind of like you know it, it was like newstead coming up i was like it's really not that big a deal you know to me it wasn't a big a deal because i knew that i could run circles around it and still can but um that's just the competitiveness i have in me you know um it was uh i think it's funny that don took over the vocals and phil went on guitar that shows you how you know that that it really wasn't important. That makes sense to you. We we had we had a little inside joke, you know. All right, well here comes Newstead. We couldn't really. He would never hang out with us, you know. Like even back in those days, he was. I, I don't know what the guy did. He was just Mister Invisible, Houdini. Um, it it was uh, fucking who was on tour with us? Uh, it was Sepultura, and they were friends with Jason. And so, and so they were, they were had a dressing room next to us and Jason was over there and he came and said hi and he's that really weird dude, you know, that just, here's a shot, dude, you know, drink it away. Uh, no, I won't be drinking that tonight. You know, one of those things. So he said, all right, come on upstage. <laughs> we'll get a little trick for you. <laughs> Don's going to sing. I remember John, Don jumping off the riser and all that kind of bullshit. Um, you know, Gene, there's, there's, there's a difference. Gene Simmons playing with us at, at Santa Monica, you know, Civic Center. And that plays where Van Halen has played a fucking million times. Um, there's something about that room you just tell the chemistry or playing, you know, like, the, you know, when you play the, the, uh, the Fillmore West, you know, there's a special vibe in that room. You know, so having Gene come up and I just sat right there and that was a no joke moment, you know, where, you know, you pay your pay your respects at that point. You know, we didn't really have Jason. Jason was just so so he just wasn't meant for that band. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the difference between a, a hero and a and a peer. You know, when you got Gene Simmons up there, that's somebody you guys. Yeah. Now we grew up listening to. Right, Jason's and I'm not, more. I'm not trying to now. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, he just—he was just a different fella. And we, you know, it, it wasn't that um, we didn't like him or anything, but he just—he didn't want to be a part. You know, this is our show, motherfucker, it ain't yours. You know, so either you want to hang out or you want to whatever, or you can go back sitting dressing and whatever you want to do. Um, but I guarantee that what he saw that night, fucking left a mark on his head every show that we play we try to leave a mark on somebody's head you know and i think that's something that not every fan necessarily understands the way that people who are in the bands do which is that you can be friends and still have a healthy friendly competition i mean you still want to sure <laughs> you want you want to show up the other 
the other guy. You know, but with Lars and James, if they would have shown up, and I, I don't know why they didn't. They were probably off and, you know, mixing something. Or those guys are the hardest working motherfuckers I know. Um, well, yeah. I mean, they they back then, they were they were working their asses up nonstop. Um, and so him to come on stage in 90, what, three? Was it two? What was it? Well, that show with Jason was 94. And and you guys uh, ended up playing with Metallica again, I think, just a couple years later, probably 96. Does that sound right? We went and did a bunch of, we did, did some South American shows with them. It's funny, we'd, we'd just be in the studio and people, people would call us and go tour. And we go, okay, sure, we'll just drop everything. Um, and we would, because it, we could just do, at that point, you know, it was a, uh, I think Diamond put the studio in at, the, at his place, and that was the hangout, you know. Um, bought him this big fortress and everything else, and that's just, we'd all kind of bought ourselves home. We were, shit, we were just living in apartments two years before, you know. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a crazy time, man. At the same time, we just, we were just still kind of bitter with the industry and just, you know, look people always put those records out and they just get getting softer and softer because, you know, your first effort is, is always, well, it's a culmination of 10 years of what you've tried to do before. And then you don't have anything to follow it up on the second one, you know, or the third one. That's why it's such weak. It's the, the material is weak, weaker, you know, but we, we follow Metallica in the trend of making it heavier, making it more, you know, it doesn't have to be faster to be heavier, you know, and that's one of the things I think that we've learned from them. Yeah, and I and you know, there's that cliche where they say you have your whole career to write your debut album and six months to write the follow up. Pretty much, and it, it and we we just we came directly off of 338 days and went directly in the studio with maybe three weeks off, and uh, and made vulgar, and you could tell that, you know, we were just we had to be sharp because, you know, we had played so many gigs and so many dumb fucking places. Um, but it was getting that word out, you know? Yeah. Um, even, even though that we didn't have that, uh, I think we came in at number 44 on the billboard. I didn't even know if that thing charted. And I think it was Keenan that came up and goes, have you, we were somewhere in the South and he came up with the billboard and goes, Hey, have you seen this? And we're on tourist kid row. We're like, we don't pay attention to shit like that, you know? And then, then we heard news that, that the next record had gone to number one, and we were we were headed out to uh, going through an airport, and I paid, picked up a USA Today, and it was front page news, overnight sensation. Yeah, <laughs> eleven years later. Yeah. Do you remember anything about? I'm I'm seeing a show that was Mexico City, 1999, Metallica, Pantera, and Monster Magnet. Looks like looks like Phil sang "Creeping Death" with them during the encore. Do you remember anything yeah, about that gig? Yeah, I, I remember all those. I remember all those because I and Lars and I hung out the night before. He was uh, I was down a floor from him, and I could see him catty corner. They were upstairs, and we would usually take a whole floor, and they would take a full. And um, and so anyway, or was that that trip or not? He goes, he goes, do come up. I'm calling. Uh, he goes. He gave me the room number and said, come on up. I'm, uh, we're going to have a, me and Kirk are having a t- t- tequila tasting test. I go, fuck yeah, I'll be there because I was drinking tequila at the time. <laughs> I believe 
I believe. Uh, anyway, just hang with it. Now, look, in between that, me and Lars and Cantrell had been to fucking Vegas. We had been to, I don't know how many times we took a trip to Vegas. Like, Lars would call out of the blue and say, I got the plane. We want to go to Vegas. We're going tonight. I'm like, dude, I'm right in the middle of shooting fucking non broken. He goes, tell Wayne to fucking let you go and shoot you tomorrow. I'm like, I'll call him and see. You know, and Wayne would go, okay, fuck yeah, Lars said it. You know, it's cool. Um, I wouldn't even talk to management. We'd just hop on a fucking plane, and you know, 48 hours later, we were somehow we'd end up on the plane to get back to LA. Um, so it was it was crazy, man. We had a lot of good times with those cats, and then you know, it all kind of changed after you know when we put after Dom got shot. It was um, you know everybody was kind of you know as we're going a bit older. And went through a lot of shit. This is when, you know, Cantrell had gotten sober and I was sobered up. And I moved to L.A. in 2006 and then went on the road with James and them in 2000. Shit, I think we're playing, we're playing festivals with those guys as soon as, soon as 2000, I think like 2006. So seeing those guys and, and the, the way everything had just changed completely, you know. Yeah. Um, and James was still in that point of of not knowing really who he was, you know, and of, of us all just trying to figure out who we were because we had had so much drinking. I said, just, you know, that was just a norm um, that it was um, many times during that down period, James and I were on the phone a lot, you know, uh, about personal stuff. And he would have, whenever we were somewhere and I got in touch with him, he'd have, well, he'd have his assistant come down and throw me into that camp. But it was so much different from the old days. You know, everything was so much organized. It was like going into the fucking stones, you know, inner sanctum. Um, mm-hmm. they, they had their own little, everybody had their own fucking space, you know. And, and, and Lars and Kirk were still drinking, but they never drank before a show went in, you know or they would before. Um, and I don't think that's changed since. Would you, would you say that, you know, the way the partying was, was kind of a common bond back in the day that sobriety could probably became a bond even more so with guy with like you, you and Jerry and, and James and everything. It was because it was, um, you know, James was doing it up in San Francisco. Me and Jerry were doing it out in LA. You, you would think that those places would be the hardest places to fucking, there's a liquor store on every corner, mm-hmm. you know, and it's so you just go jump in on those things. But it, LA's recovery rate is, is one of the best in the, if not the best in the nation. You know, there, there's a meeting every fucking minute somewhere in that town. If you can't make one, you're stupid. It's one of those things, man. And, and I'm, I'm a chronic relapser, so, but I hadn't had a drink in five years, but, um, but during that point I was, because my emotions were just, I didn't know if I was coming or going, you know, there's so many sessions that I wish I could, uh, I was offered to play on that. I didn't, you know, yeah. uh, the, the Johnny Cash is unchained. I got a call to do that. Wow. And, uh, I go, oh, fuck yeah, I'll be down there, man. Let me, uh, let me, let me jump in the shower real quick. So he and Rick Rubin was Johnny. And I stepped out of bed and I couldn't stand up, you know, my head was completely there, but, and I got, there's just no way I, I'm, I'm not showing up. And it, it turned out to fucking Petty and fucking Camel were there 
James Perkins and, you know, Johnny Cash, and they needed a bass player. Wow. And, and fucking Ruben and Sweeney called me, and I hadn't seen Rick for years. I just saw a documentary he did on the Abbott Brothers, which is insane. Um, I really like that, man. But um, it's not metal, man. I've seen I've seen them live. I saw them at Stagecoach a few years ago. Those guys can play. It's pretty awesome. God damn, dude! It, it, it's so real. You know, it's like I don't know if, if, if have you seen the new HBO series? It's not a series of movies. It's called Make It May It Last. No. Um, and it tells their whole story. No. And it's it'll make you break. For me, it, it just there were so many comparisons to what you know with brothers in a band. It, I just it literally, I it just shook me. I had to watch it two or three times, you know. There's now some... I can't get these songs out of my head. This guy reminds me the the, the guitar player and and uh, little brother reminds me of James Taylor. Just the way he looks and the way he picks and sings, you know, it's just crazy, man. And there's something about those bands, the chemistry with brothers. I mean, one and I know. I know, much like Lars, one of my favorite bands of all time, believe it or not, is Oasis. Oh, yeah, dude. I love Oasis. And there's just something about, I love both of them independently from one another. Liam's first solo record he finally got out, I love it. Um, I love this shirt is new. It's not bad. Yeah, it's great. Um, but there's just something about that chemistry of those two together that's just, um, you know. I think it's, you know, this is something that Daryl and Vinny never did. Where they never butted heads like that. They never... You know, they, they didn't, um, it was, I mean, sure, they butted heads on, you know, they were two completely different people. I mean, it wasn't like, but they had one common central thing they had but you know, um, and I became, somehow, I was that third brother, you know, um, as much as Vinny was, if not more, you know, um, we kind of, we kind of, um, poor Vinny. You know, I feel terrible for the guy, and I was showing some fucking harsh for him in that book, which I tried to retract several times, or redact, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, um, well, that's kind of the danger, but, right, of of writing a book with somebody else that you're. But but if not, to. if you're not telling the fucking truth, man, from from the start to finish, you know, if you read the front paragraph to the very last paragraph. You know, that's, uh, if you're only taking snippets out of it, then yes, I was hard as hell on it. If not, you know, you don't read the the very last three pages of the book. It says, you know, sorry, bro. But anyway, that's, yeah, going back to the other brother, that's, uh, you know, you kind of see where one brother kind of follows the other one. But that's what Don kind of did for a while. He was following Big Brother. And then after a while, he got so good that Big Brother was following him. You know, and I'm always made sure that he was taken care of, you know, um, way out of normal situ circumstances, you know, um, it was that kind of, uh, it was that kind of, uh, just a brotherly thing, you know, and that's what that movie, you got to watch it. So. But I think also, you know, when you have these brothers that fight all the time and all that kind of bullshit, Oasis, I mean, they came out their first single and they sold 20 million fucking records. I mean, instantly you have multi-millions of dollars in your pocket. It's going to throw you around. You know, it's going to twist you. And it's and especially when you're working class guys like them that came up with nothing, you know, and then to be thrown exactly. into that. 
or you take the kinks to the to the robinson brothers i mean you know the um, same story it's just different circumstances you know in each story you want to go you know some brothers like to brawl and hit each other you know that was just something that uh you know <laughs> growing up and and Vinny's favorite thing was to step on your foot and then hit you in the face. Well, that, no, that's not going to work. You always washed out for that. You washed out for that left foot. So you knew a right was coming. So um, we beat him to the punch. You know, well, no pun, always, no pun intended. We would, we would move that foot real quick. And he had nothing to stand on. You know. So I mean, him doing that down a couple of times. I said, I know a way to get around that dude. Well, listen, I, I, I man, I could, I could talk to you all day, literally. Fuck yeah. I love love hanging out with him, talking to him, and shit, dude. Dude, it's uh, it's the fucking it's the best. And uh, I feel I feel like I know I can open up to you because you you know you you know the bio we were just sitting talking and you just made it to a fucking masterpiece. Oh, you know, so. it, uh, I feel comfortable talking to you. So, shit, yeah. All right, bro. Great talking to you. Likewise, man. You can keep up with everything Rex has going on at rexbrown.net. Be sure to follow Speak and Destroy on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for fine Metallica-related content curated by yours truly. And follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out past episodes with great guests like David Ellefson of Megadeth, M. Shadows of Avenged Sevenfold, Lizzie Hale of Hailstorm, Rob Halford of Judas Priest, and many, many more. As always, you guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downing.